Christianity is the greatest story ever told. Let's learn how to tell it well. Because I think our society is increasingly wanting to know what what's what's out there and we've got a great message to bring them if we learn how to tell it well. In the early 1960s, one of the progenitors of the belief in ancient aliens, W. Raymond Drake, not to be confused with Frank Drake, the author of the famed Drake Equation, published a short little book titled Gods or Spacemen, in which he lays out what he thinks is substantial evidence for the existence of extraterrestrial life. In the closing chapters, Drake suggests that, quote, the revelation of countless inhabited worlds suggests a wondrous universal religion transcending the conflicting creeds of Earth, end quote. Drake believed that, quote, this concept of the inhabited universe surely revolutionizes our theology, philosophy, most all of our fundamental beliefs, end quote. Drake doubted Jesus' existence, but nevertheless believed that the universe was populated with extraterrestrial life, some of which he believed had made an appearance to ancient civilizations here on Earth. Few today seriously advocate for the ancient alien theory, but Drake's comments are nonetheless a familiar sentiment among non-religious persons interested in the question of the existence of extraterrestrial life. Agnostic atheist and physicist Paul Davies, for example, has suggested that the discovery of E.T. would, quote, shake up the world's faiths. The discovery of any sign that we are not alone in the universe would prove deeply problematic for the main organized religions, which were founded in the pre-scientific era and are based on a view of the cosmos that belongs to a bygone era." End quote. While we certainly can agree with Davies that our views of the cosmos certainly have changed over the centuries, there is nothing in the physical universe, including the possibility of any kind of extraterrestrial life, that would come in conflict with anything found in the pages of Scripture. The Bible is completely silent on the matter of life outside of Earth. In addition, there is no concrete scientific evidence that life exists beyond our planet. Scripture, for example, tells us that Jesus was born here on Earth, in Bethlehem, he lived in and around Israel, amidst the people whom he loved and came to save. He died and was buried just outside of the walls of Jerusalem in 33 AD. Very Earth-specific. It thus seems highly unlikely that these events would have any significance to beings who knew nothing about Earth, let alone anything about a few obscure Roman provinces from the first century AD. We do know from scripture that Jesus died for our sin once here on earth, in a specific place, at a specific time. See John 19.30, Hebrews 10, and Romans 6.10. If there is life outside of earth, it is virtually certain that Christ's death and resurrection do not pertain to it. But for us here on earth, Jesus is the center of all human history. No matter what you may believe about God or aliens or many worlds, the most important question we can ask ourselves is, who is Jesus Christ? Your life depends 
on him. And again, if there is life elsewhere in the universe, the Christian faith is not the least bit threatened by it. As we mentioned last week, whatever exists in the physical universe has been created through and for the Lord Jesus Christ. Quote, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. End quote. If the question of alien or extraterrestrial life, however, casts a pall over the person of Jesus, if such speculation ends up denying his divinity, denying he is the Messiah, the Christ, denying he is Lord of all, then that is nothing less than the spirit of the Antichrist. As 1 John 2.22 says, quote, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. End quote. Too much speculation about aliens can and does lead one swiftly into the occult. For more information about the connection between aliens and the occult, see the notes section of this episode. The belief that aliens or ET or the science of the cosmos would somehow invalidate or call into question what God has revealed to us, both in the physical universe and in the person of his Son, is simply false. For naturalistic accounts of a cosmos without a creator, simply fail to account for who Jesus is. There are no solid historical arguments against the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Alien beings certainly are not one of them. This is part two of our combined apologetics profile and Good Heavens discussion with Reasons to Believe cosmologist Dr. Jeff Swearing. Here on part two, Jeff and I continue to discuss the question of extraterrestrial life and the inadequacies of a naturalistic worldview in accounting for the existence of the cosmos and our special place within it. As we begin part two, I asked Jeff about what astronomers call the habitable zone, a narrow region that a planet must inhabit in order for it to be able to have liquid water and thus support life. Here once again is Dr. Jeff Swearing. What you're identifying is there's, you know, it's generally referred to as the liquid water habitable zone. It's the, you know, given a star's luminosity, a planet needs to be at a certain distance so that the temperature of its surface is conducive to water being in its liquid state. So water is a very abundant molecule in the universe. So the idea that various objects have water is not a, that, that's an expected conclusion because of how abundant water is in the universe. But for life to work, there's got to be liquid water. And there's there's a whole discussion of why it has to be water and not some other uh, liquid because water has a number of remarkable properties but water is liquid between zero degrees Celsius and 100 degrees Celsius, or 32 Fahrenheit and 212 Fahrenheit, if you like those units better. And most of the 
energy that drives the temperature of the planet is actually from the star that it orbits. And so if you're too far away, the planet doesn't receive enough radiation and it's cold and all of the water is frozen into an ice form. If you're too close, if the planet is too close to the star, it receives too much radiation and the temperature is too hot and it's all in a vapor form. And there's a range where, in principle, the planet receives enough radiation that it could be liquid in its environment <clears throat> or on the planet. Now, I will say that that statement provides some boundaries to that, but the reality is more complicated, and I would argue more designed than that, because the type of atmosphere plays critically into what's going on there. Because you could be, or rather the Earth's atmosphere affects the average temperature of the planet. It makes it about, I think it's about 20 or 30 degrees Celsius higher than it would be just based on where Earth is located. And so the type of atmosphere and where the planet is located is critical. And, and if I could make that connection back to my statement about the Great Symphony, when Earth's about two and a half billion years ago, oxygen started being generated and put up into the atmosphere. And what that does is it will react with all the methane in the atmosphere and convert the methane into water and carbon dioxide. You think, oh, carbon dioxide is a good greenhouse gas. That's true, but methane is a far better greenhouse gas. So when life starts generating all this oxygen, it changes the composition of the atmosphere that very easily could have driven Earth into a global ice ball, which would have never been habitable again. But it happened at just the right time where there's tectonic activity going on that increases the greenhouse gas in the atmosphere and the sun's luminosity is climbing. And it happened just at the right time where that could happen. All of those processes instead of driving Earth into a global ice house, actually maintained its environment where liquid water could exist. And so that habitable zone is being in that range where it could happen, but to actually have liquid water on the surface of the planet requires a great interplay between the geological processes on the planet, the atmospheric processes on the planet, as well as what's going on in the activity of the star itself. So it's a lot more complicated than that, but if you're not in the habitable zone to start, you're not even going to get the conversation off the ground. Yeah, that's fascinating. I I, I wanted to, uh, it brought to mind the scripture in uh, Mark 6, verse 3, when uh, Jesus came to uh, his hometown, Nazareth, and began to teach. And the crowd, it said in verse 3, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And it's it's a fascinating connection for me, Jeff, based on what you, you mentioned, plate tectonics, and I'd like to talk about that just a little bit. So not only are we talking about the liquid habitable zone, uh, water, uh, atmospheric pressure, distance from the sun, all the technical stuff that you just described, the, the symphony of God, if you will, in, in creation. But we're also talking about plate tectonics, which is is a relatively recent uh, physically proven aspect, which I didn't know for a while that this was a speculative idea, that, that, that Earth's plates, there were plates and they moved around. People thought this was, a, this was something of science fiction when it first came out. But the Greek word for carpenter in Mark 6.3 is tekton 
from which we get <laughs> get the word tectonics. And so, you know, the, I love there's rich irony in this, I think, uh, that when the, the, the audience in Jesus's hometown says, is this not the tecton? <laughs> and little do they know that this is the tecton, capital T, or carpenter, capital C, who hasn't who has designed not only maybe furniture and maybe some houses or something. Who knows what Jesus did in his earthly life, what he made? But this 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 was the one who created the heavens and the earth, you know. And this just makes you makes you shiver, you know. It's just amazing that uh, to to consider what uh, it's like. What Mary said when she saw Jesus in the garden, she she mistook him. Uh, for the gardener, but did she really? Because uh, in Genesis it says that God planted a garden, so it just it just it's a wonderful attestation of of God's incredible ingenuity, design, and uh, and thought. And uh, I was reading a theologian, Herman Bavink, this morning in preparation for our interview, and uh, Bavink says that uh, that creation is uh, the embodiment of God's thoughts. I thought that was fascinating. And, and when you think of creation that way, Jeff, it just, it, it stirs your soul. Everything is a parable for God's divine, invisible attributes, wouldn't you say? And, you know, I, I'm just enjoying listening to that, that connection between tectonic and... Isn't that wonderful? Know, I mean, it's like there's, there's, I, there's just a richness there that I... I I'm kind of half convinced that when we're in the new creation, we're going to perpetually be studying God's creation and there's always new things to learn. There's just a richness and depth right. that is impossible that we, we get hints of that now. And that, I mean, I've been looking at scripture now for, you know, 40, 50 years and I'm still learning new, big new things, even though I understand a lot of what's already in there. And so I just find that aspect pretty fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I, I loved the that idea of that carpenter, that that tectonic activity, and how important that is, because the the size of our planet actually plays into what kind of tectonic activity you get. Hmm. Because if the planet is larger, your plates are thinner, and you get a lot more tectonic activity. Whereas if your planet is smaller, your plates are thicker, and you get a lot less. Okay. And so we happen to be at just that size where you get the right amount of tectonic activity. But that also connects with a, a problem I did in one of my high school or college astronomy classes, where we did a calculation on what sort of gravity does the earth have? And so what sort of gases does it hold on to? And I remember going through that calculation and you find that the earth is, it's great it, because of the size of the earth and the mass of the earth, its surface gravity is large enough to hold on to water, which has a molecular weight of 18. It will hold on to water for a really long time, but it's not large enough to hold on to methane or ammonia, which have molecular weights of 17 and 16 for very long. And so for life purposes, water is incredibly important, but methane and ammonia tend to be stifling at least to advanced life. And so mm -hmm. here we live on this planet which is just large enough to hold on to its water for a long time, but not large enough to hold on to these heavier, more poisonous gases. And that same size also gives us the right amount of tectonic activity. And so I just found that pretty fascinating. You know, this level of no matter how much we study about creation, we're finding more there than what, what we could dream of. So it is fascinating. I don't know how closely you followed it. I remember a couple of years ago, 
an Icelandic volcano that was making the news. Um, there were associated press images. They're fascinating of this massive, slowly moving mound of lava through an Icelandic valley, uh, with the, the the dark lava oozing its way through the through the mountains and the spectators surrounding this growing, slow moving lava pile. It wasn't a violent eruption, like spewing like Mount St. Helens. This was a slow, gradual oozing of of the Earth's blood, if you will. But the, the the spectators standing around taking pictures, the, the pictures that came out of this were phenomenal. But what what was interesting, this made 60 Minutes, uh, they revisited the valley. And the valley was transformed completely. The landscape was completely transformed. The lava filled the valley like a bathtub, the 60 Minutes reporter said, uh, with the volume of an Olympic-sized swimming pool every four seconds. And the Icelanders renamed this valley, and I don't know what the Icelandic translation is, but it means beautiful valley mountain. And so you come back to this region after all the eruption had subsided, and you don't even recognize the landscape. And uh, 60 Minutes interviewed a geologist from Texas who was there in Iceland studying volcanoes. And he said this, um, since we're on the subject of tectonics, he says, "You you have work to do as a geologist, but there are times when you just sit there and stare at the volcano, it's just so much grander than you. It's kind of this, almost this kind of divine presence. Now, the 60 Minutes interview did not have the guy uh, go into any great detail about what he meant by that statement. But uh, here it is in the 21st century geologist on 60 Minutes talking about a volcano reminding him of a divine presence. And right. I think I think that's just... An attestation of what we've been talking about, Jeff, especially about Romans 1, that you look at creation and that you cannot help. Your first thoughts about all this is, what is God like, you know, in, in terms of this? It's it's phenomenal. And I think that that, that when we see volcanism and plate tectonics um, and, and all of these mechanisms working together, that, uh, as you say, that we can't help but hear the notes of this divine symphony that has put it all together. And of course we have this revelation in scripture, lift your eyes up on high and see who has created these stars. Or as James Clerk Maxwell has put over the door of the original Cambridge, the original um, laboratory in Cambridge, when he had it made uh, Psalm 111 to great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Uh, we, We can't help but be awed by this. Even in secular books about creation, the scientists will always have something to say about about God having something to do with this or not. So it seems like no matter where you're coming from, one cannot help but bring God into this discussion one way or another. You know, I find that a fascinating statement because one of the things that I find true is that the more I study something, the more comfortable I get with it. And so, you know, I'm just referring back to your statement of this fellow looking at the volcano and, you know, even as you were describing it, you said, okay, it's this kind, not the kind of Mount St. Helens. Well, that's because that volcano in Iceland is at a mid-ocean ridge, which is where you get plate spreading. And so you get uh, magma coming up that is very low volatiles and it tends to flow and ooze, whereas Mount St. Helens is uh, on a plate boundary where you've got subduction and that's bringing volatiles down in and you get more explosive. So in the midst of that, this, your comment there, I'm thinking about, oh, I know why those volcanoes behave that way. Hmm. But 
there's times where my understanding is at an academic level. I can write the equations. I know why these things are there, but I, I really don't understand the power and magnitude that are involved in that. I mean, I can mm. talk about subduction, but the forces involved in subduction of having these massive plates that are miles thick grind past one another and get bent so that one goes, I can't even begin to fathom that. And even if I could, there's no way I could build that. I can mm. observe it. But when I step back and think, it's like, yes, I can understand at some level, but it's also so much bigger, so much grander, so much more that I, I, if I'm not careful, I can tend to trivialize the process because I can understand it at some level. That's an excellent point, Jeff. I appreciate you uh, candidly observing your own observational <laughs> biases there, or at least how that can impact you. Because it, it reminds me of when I was a kid, I went to Disneyland for the first time. I was nine or 10. I don't remember how old I was. And I know you've been to the haunt. Everybody's been to the haunted house in Disneyland, the original, the one in LA. Um, when you go into the main lobby and the, the walls start to grow, right? Um, really, you're on a big elevator. And I remember looking down at the floor and seeing I don't know what it was that tipped me off that, that we were in an elevator and we were descending. But I was like, oh, this is an elevator. And it immediately sort of took away the magic of the of the moment, <laughs> you know, because I know what an elevator is. And I'm no, this is supposed to be, you know, beyond what I can explain in a technical sense. And I think that's a good point you you bring up that we can be so keen on the technical details. Um, we can talk about cosmogony we can talk about particle physics we can talk about the mechanisms but as you say uh when it comes down to it i think the the best and the most correct way to 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 see these things is through an awe and wonder through the eye of worship right um and i think that's what the geologist was getting at you're standing in some kind of presence of divine there was a 2012 article based on what you're saying here the 2012 article from live live science talking about lightning and uh I got this quote. I love this quote. It says, for all we know, lightning might as well come from Zeus. Counting Ben Franklin's kite and key experiment as the starting point, 250 years of scientific investigation have yet to get grips with, to come to grips with how lightning works. So it, it just, it just seems like God does reserve a sort of realm of the unknown and the, the majesty, I guess, for lack of a better word, of creation, Jeff. It just it just seems like science is part of that. It can certainly add to it. But that reverential point of view that gives us the shivers, you know, that sometimes transcends all the numbers and the data. And we we lose that perspective. And it's such a, a needful and a healthful perspective. I have an agnostic friend who uh, I, I was talking to him at length about the glory of God. And out of the blue, a couple of months ago, he emailed me and said, Dan, I, I'm not a Christian, but I do understand now what you mean by the glory of God. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the, the MIT physicist, Alan Lightman, we've had him on our book club. And he has a book, and he described the, the, the epiphany he had. But he was out in a lake, I think it was in Maine somewhere, and he was staring up at, a, at, the, at the stars. And he just had this deep, impactful moment of recognizing the profundity, the glory, the depths of the universe. Now he didn't express it in theological terms, but, mm -hmm. but he had that transcendent experience. We had a friend at our book club, uh, Dick, who passed away. He was an atheist. I think he was in Yosemite Valley, similar experience, something that shook him to his core that he couldn't explain. He didn't have the, 
he didn't have the worldview or the parameter to be able to explain this incredible encounter with nature that made him weep. I mean, how yeah. do you, how do you, how, how does a naturalist explain? And, and I have this when I drive through the desert, when I'm, I see the mountains and the vistas and the plateaus. I love the desert. I love the desert landscape. It's, it, it is emotionally overpowering Jeff to really just meditate on creation in a worshipful sense. I really, I like what you said there. I, I, I agree with that. And I'm glad to know there are people who like deserts because <laughs> you know, when, it, when I talk about that, or if I talk about where do I want to go, it's almost always mountains and waterfalls. And, you know, I, 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 am, I know enough to know to appreciate the grandeur of the desert, but it doesn't, it's not like, the, oh, I can't wait to be there. Whereas, you know, you put me out on a mountain, I'll enjoy that all the time. But, mm. <laughs> you know, it's like, even in God's art, artistry and grandeur, he's he's reaching a broad swath of personalities and what, what people find value. But, yes. you know, I, I do just find that as I study, you know, I mean, I, I am impressed and amazed at the things that we have learned and figured out. And yes, I know we don't know all the details about lightning, but we know a whole lot more than we used to. And there's <laughs> a whole lot more fascinating to learn. But even if I understood everything about lightning, I still can't generate what happens in the sky. As, as humans, I'm just incapable of that. Because I don't, I don't have, there's the size of the air masses and the amount of energies involved. I just can't do that here on earth. It's, it's beyond my, as a human, it's beyond our human powers to do that at some level. Mm -hmm. This is just an afterthought, almost an afterthought to God. You know, it's like, it requires no energy. No, he's not tired from doing it. It's just part of that he sustains. And I, I often, you know, that was kind of what I was leading to. I can often get, oh, I understand that, but I have a intellectual understanding, not a I can do this understanding like God has, if you mm. will. Mm. Good point. Good point. There are so many things that I find fascinating in creation, you know, whether it be understanding a desert or a mountain or a waterfall or a supernova, that even though I understand them, just they continually remind me when I stop to pay attention of just how big and awesome and majestic God is. Truly. truly. And I think, I think those are the sorts of things these people are encountering. They see that there's something bigger, but I I love the way he said, it's like they don't have the framework or they don't have the tools to their, their worldview doesn't give them the tools to say, ah, this is who God is. Right. It's like, uh, uh, the scene in, uh, the iconic scene in Jaws. Uh, you're going to need a bigger boat. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> when you see the majesty of the fish, you're going to you're going to be uh, needing to jettison your dinghy. Um, and I think that's a worldview problem too. You're going to need a, a bigger conceptual worldview uh, of of how to process all of this. Because I think whether you're an atheist or a Christian, a theist, a non-theist, whatever your worldview, all of us at some point have been smitten by creation. Uh, yeah. to, to an extent that we can't finally um, uh, grope, we grope in the dark for words to try to articulate it. And uh, it's interesting, Jeff. A lot of times, you know, in this day and age where we we have everybody has a smartphone and we take pictures of everything we think are beautiful, and I think that's fantastic. But one of the things that I have deliberately done um, is 
when I'm in a, a natural environment, like I was in Yosemite a couple of years ago, I didn't take a single picture because I find that the pictures, they're good mnemonic devices. I can go back and look at, at what I've looked at, but they somewhat for me reduce the experience that I'm left with if I just have a memory of standing in the presence of say Yosemite Falls at its base or standing at Half Dome uh, from right. behind it or around it. And it's it's that sublimity that I want to leave Yosemite with. If I put it into pictorial form, I tend to reduce the magnitude of that encounter. This is just me speaking personally. And so what I do a lot of times in nature, if I'm overwhelmed by something, even I find this in astronomy, I don't do astrophotography because I find the same, the same principle at work. I love laying on the ground, looking up at a pure dark sky and imagining that I'm hanging from the bottom of the earth about to fall into the stars. <laughs> I, I love that transcendent encounter. And it's one thing that has, has really encouraged me in my own personal walk with Jesus is, is really trying to see him in, in nature. Um, not not pantheistically, but but how he exhibits his faithfulness to us through what he has made, um, and uh, I, I just love all that. So I I appreciate that this this has kind of taken a different uh, <laughs> take than than the alien thing, but uh, I think it is uh, encouraging um, f- for us as Christians to be to be reminded of how beautiful the universe is, and and that it's first and foremost the thoughts of God, and 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 it's really Jeff. More than it is a, a quantum mechanical theory or a or a standard model theory, uh, really, I think the base of what constitutes our existence is love, because God is love, and we are looking at expressions, manifold expressions of His love toward us in Christ through what He has made, both in Scripture and in creation. Yeah, that that is a great way to say that, and you know the. Yes, understanding creation. I, I, I obviously I wouldn't be a scientist if I didn't think trying to understand was creation was important. Of course, but it's a tool to help us get to that bigger picture of who God is and how we relate to Him, not the end means in and of itself. And and I was just struck by there are two different places where we've come up and we said our world the worldview wasn't big enough. And, you know, it was in talking about the despair of the purposeless and meaninglessness of things, but also in the overwhelmness of God's majesty and creation. Yes. And I think, I think how we think about the world, our worldview is incredibly important um, because how we think about the world is going to give us the tools to interact. If, there isn't a God out there and there is no meaning and purpose. When you're confronted with this, is there meaning and purpose and what's worth living? There's nothing to, there's no real reason to say, yeah, it is. There is a purpose and a meaning if, if naturalism is true, whereas the Christian worldview says, no, yes, the physical world's important, but that's not the all of reality. There's something bigger than that. And, you know, even and and enjoying just studying, understanding creation. Yeah, understanding creation is great, but that's not all there is. There's something bigger than that. And so I, I, I just thought that, that connection to me was interesting. That twice we've come up into where if you take a naturalistic worldview, you don't have the tools to deal with what you're being confronted with. Exactly, and it's not just a matter of of the tool. It's a matter of having that relationship with your creator who intended for you to enjoy this he sends rain on the just and the unjust 
and we have we all have what are whatever our worldview is we all have this created world in common and uh, i like what jesus says in uh, the question he asks in mark chapter 4 to what should we liken the kingdom of god what parable should we use and he's always using nat- he's often using nature parables the lilies mm-hmm. birds uh water bread fish uh and, and it seems to me, you know, as, as as the end of the Gospel of John says, if 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 he wrote down everything that Jesus said and did, there would not be enough books. <laughs> the, the world couldn't contain all the books that he, that uh, recording what he did. So to me, it says that he set a precedent for us uh, to 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 speak uh, and to understand and to recognize um, kingdom parables in mm. the cre- in the created world. That that he has richly blessed us. He didn't just limit us to talking about fish and birds and. <laughs> and, and lilies, but that go and do likewise, you know, the, the commandment uh, to go and do likewise, not only loving your neighbor, but 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 speaking to the world uh, with parables from creation. You know, the kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like that. And I think in every lily or leaf or star or lake or fish, in any creature, great or small, that uh, that there is a kingdom parable somewhere to be found. And we're all going to interpret it a little differently, but I think with Christ as our hermeneutic, um, we are showing people the possibility. Uh, we can't convince them. God only does that, but we are showing people the possibility of belief and how it resonates with us. And I think so Christians of all people should be, in, in our stewardship of creation, we should be thinking Christianly about about the things that God has made. Uh, and I don't think we're doing that enough, uh, honestly, quite frankly. And that's what I—that's one of the reasons we do our podcast is to get people to think Christianly about crea- right. about creation. Because we—it seems like Jeff that we have surrendered a, a lot of, you know, you can look at it this way: like the church has had it at some point in its history, the church has had a yard sale, and we've just sold creation to to secular science, and we've hmm. we've sort of retreated from uh, a cultural engagement with it. Because I think, I mean, as you know, I mean, your book has a lot of really good science in it. But I think the technical details of, of physical sciences today have become so amazing in one sense, but so difficult to follow in another right. another sense that people just sort of give up on trying to uh, understand creation because they're afraid of science. No, I, I would agree there, and I, you know, I was just again in that in that vein struck by your comment of how kind of the popular culture has this Carl Sagan, you know. Uh, uh, cosmos type the physical world is all there is type thing and what struck me about that is that yes they understand the science they understand the technical details but there is a rhetorical flair in being able to talk about things that i see in the parables of jesus that he's not just well here look at the birds they they do this you know it's like there's an engaging rhetorical, not only does he know what's going on, but he knows how to say things in a way that connect with people. Right. Exactly. I, think, I, I do think there are Christians who are heavily involved in the sciences. I, I don't think Christians have just said, ah, we're going to let the other people. <laughs> but as a church, I don't think we are doing as much to engage in that rhetoric using the rhetoric. And I'm not, using that in a pejorative way, you can just say things and be vacuous and be rhetorically good. But, you know, using the rhetorical element of, that God has provided us to say things about Christianity that naturally draws people to God. Uh, you know, I, I think we just need to develop that better 
because Christianity is the greatest story ever told. Mm. Don't always tell it very well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, science always has and has always had and has been a, a, an enjoyable, productive, and fruitful endeavor because the earliest natural philosophers, uh, how far back you want to go to the medievals, always incorporated scientific fact within a larger narrative. And now we seem to be swimming in a narrative-less, fact-only kind of existence. Here's the facts. There's yeah. no there's no story to them. It's just the facts. Uh, you know, whether it's atoms or molecules or fusion and stars, these are just the facts. And there's no... Uh, it's like the character in uh, C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Eustace Scrub, who Lewis describes as someone who liked books of information. And Lewis, <laughs> Lewis is sort of taking a pejorative look at an unimaginative culture that has been swimming in this dialectical materialism where the narrative has been scrubbed out, like Lady Macbeth trying to get the blood stain off of her husband's clothing. You know, it's like we want to eviscerate the greater meaningful narrative in which these facts have traditionally resided. But we don't have a story to tell ourselves anymore. Uh, the the postmodern uh, hermeneutic of suspicion we, what's the ultimate narrative for all these facts? What best explains them? Well, nothing. There is no, there is no story, yeah. and, and that seems to be a tragedy as well that we're we're processing. Uh, I know we're we're uh, kind of over time than what I had scheduled with Melanie, but uh, if you want to comment on that, we'll wrap up. No, I think that's interesting because you know the moment you said that, I was drawn to a comment that one of uh, my missionary friends had made is that there's kind of two universal languages, if you will is that of music and that of story. And if, if yeah. you look at the people remember and engage with, it's music and story. And so I just see how there is this narrative, you know, you got the facts, you got the logic. It's all of that's really good, but that's that needs a bigger story to fit in. And we're almost celebrating not having a story to fit it in. Right. If Jesus were to come back to, to us, he would say, man cannot live on facts alone (laughs) as important as facts are right you you don't want to be devoid of facts right but the story is incredibly important and yeah i i'll say it again christianity is the greatest story ever told let's learn how to tell it well because i think our society is increasingly wanting to know what what's what's out there and we've got a great message to bring them if we learn how to tell it well absolutely it's like uh dissecting a Jane Austen novel talking about what uh, Elizabeth Bennet is wearing or what Mr. Darcy says uh, just distilling the facts out of the novel and then uh, sort of saying well there's no story to all of this there's no Jane Austen it's just facts this is just what uh, 18th century uh, Elizabethan or 18th century England was like it's just facts there's no story behind it but we've we've lost the the wit and the verve and the the livelihood of an Austin narrative, you know, when we just distill it all down to, to facts. And I think that's kind of where we are. So Jeff, I really appreciate your, your time today. Uh, thank you so much for your insights and wisdom. Um, your book is, uh, is there life out there? Uh, it is a, it's one of the, now I know we have some listeners that are, I don't want to, don't want to spend any time talking about young earth olders, but we do have listeners that are uh, of both camps. We try, try to be the journalistic uh, middle ground when I do these things. So uh, you, you take an old, obviously you and Reasons to Believe take an old earth perspective, and, um, and but you do lay out basically what the current scientific paradigm 
is. And so if you want a broad perspective on an old Earth perspective about what the what science is teaching us about our cosmos, your book does lay out all those details. It does provide solid facts about uh, uh, planets and uh, what we've been talking about. So in that sense, a great book, very readable. Uh, if you like the science and the alien debate, uh, this is a great book. It takes a, it takes more of a perspective of of the science than it does uh, maybe the more of the UFO sort of things. But uh, great book, Jeff. Uh, final thoughts uh, and advice to our young and old Earth audience alike. Anything that you want to say to to wrap up? And uh, I would just say, uh, you know, as I've studied these topics, my question. You, know, you notice a lot of my books are questions, and this yeah. is because. I run into questions is like, okay, I can make arguments for why we're designed, but what if we find life out there? What do we do with that? And so that's what was the genesis of why I wrote that book. You know, can we escape the beginning? Mm. What if there's no beginning? Uh, you know, what if there's a multiverse? Keep asking questions because what I have found is that Christianity is robust. God wants us to dig in and probe and ask those questions because the more we do that, at least the more I've done that, the more confident I have become in the truth of Christianity. And it has equipped me to be able to go out and talk with others. And so keep being curious, asking questions, and your confidence in the truth of Christianity will grow as you explore those questions and find the answers that God has made available. 